0: Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're taking a brief detour from Romans while we're composing the final two messages there. And so we're kind of just, we're going to be here in 1 in Thessalonians probably today and uh, one more week. But 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, if you'll stand for the reading of the scriptures, we'll just read verses uh, 1 through 6, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 6. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious morning this is. And Father, even now we are surrounded by many blessings we're not even aware of. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom we can see and know. Thank you, Lord, we hold your word in our hands. We can say we have truth in a world full of deception. Father, we pray for your blessing this morning as this bread is broken and distributed, that you would take it and feed your people, Lord, myself included. Lord, we are hungry. We need your word. And I pray you do your mighty work in each heart, as each of us have need. Bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began by uh, those first verses in First Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, of course, chapter one was talking about Paul's. Uh, really commending the the dynamic and famous faith of these people in the church at Thessalonica. And then chapter 2 switches to an emphasis on the way in which Paul and Silas, uh, and debatably Timothy, uh, I say debatably because we don't know for sure if he was there the first time or if he just came later, but he's thrown in as an example anyhow, he was at least there. Uh, At a later date, but Paul's emphasizing the way in which these three men had ministered to them when they had been among them. And you'll remember uh, the time frame, if you compare with the book of Acts, chapter 17, that they were in that city for a very brief period of time. It was only three Sabbath days, so it was less than a month. And the foundations were laid, and God moved mightily to establish what would become a tremendous New Testament church in a very short amount of time. Again, that was uh, singularly impressive, even for Paul. Uh, That was not the case at Ephesus or Corinth or other places, but God opened the window very shortly and did a great work before that window closed. And the topic we're discussing is uh, characteristics of a ministry that is not in vain. And Paul is reminding these people that when they came in, their entrance was not vain. Of course, vain here, that word, uh, means empty with particular respect to quality. He's saying, you know, when we came, this was real substance. It's interesting how the fruit of their lives bore this out. In fact, if you just go through this text very quickly, notice how he makes reference to this multiple times. In verse 1, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know. Verse 2, as ye know. Verse 5, as ye know. Verse 9, for ye remember. Verse 10, ye are witnesses. Uh, Verse 11, as ye know. So their message was underscored by their own living testimony of the truth of God. We also notice their awareness of God's heart-searching presence. Verse 4, he mentions God that which trieth the hearts. Verse 5, God is witness. Verse 10, and God also is witness. Now basically, to have a conscience void of offense towards God... And a blameless life toward a watching world should be the goal of every single Christian person, shouldn't it? I mentioned that all of us are ministers. I think we need to be reminded of that. When you say, well, what is a minister? I know we have the position, a pastor or whatever word you want to designate, what it is that I do and some others do. But really the word minister means servant. And if you belong to Christ, you have been saved to serve. So you look at your life, really, your service to God, is a collection of various stewardships. I mean, in a sense, every one of you is the chief ruler over a little farm, and you have all these different crops that you're working on simultaneously. Now, do you know the neighborhood you live in is no accident? You and your neighborhood are functioning in a a ministry that God has entrusted to you. The job you work is no accident. That is a ministry that has been entrusted to you. Your family relationships are no accident. and whatever way those work out for various ones here, those are all ministry stewardships that have been entrusted to you. And of course, that can extend to things within the auspices of the local church, but it includes all areas of our life. Now tell me, which part of our life is God not welcome? Hopefully none. All of it is His domain if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now characteristic number one of this ministry not in vain, and again, these are applicable not just to what we do here in this building. I want to emphasize one more time, Paul is not writing this at some leadership conference. He's giving these characteristics to the people of this regular local assembly just like us here to show them how to carry out the stewardships that have been handed to them. And these uh, do apply to those various ministries God has entrusted to us. The first characteristic we talked about last week, they patiently endured difficulty. In fact, uh, uh, this church at Thessalonica they would founded, you'll recall, comes Acts 17, right after Acts 16, when Paul makes reference to them being shamefully entreated at Philippi. They were publicly mocked. They were locked in the stocks. They were run out of town on a rail. And on the heels of that, uh, Paul comes to Thessalonica. And God has a mighty work in store there. We were talking about in the men's uh, Bible study uh, how uh, in Alaska, where I grew up, and one of the weird things about berries, if you had a particularly brutal winter, you know, the kind where it was five feet, six feet of snow on the ground, 30, 40 below zero for weeks at a time, it was after those winters that the berry crops would grow in huge handful of clusters. I was thinking about that more yesterday. What an application to you and I. Isn't it those times of hardship where it's bitterly cold, where it feels like winter in the Christian life, where God is preparing us for more fruitfulness? It was Spurgeon that used to say, he talked about the times of darkness he went into and the, the inexplicable difficulty where he wanted to just walk away. He began to look at those, he said, as a harbinger of a great harvest God was about to give. Now, that's the eye of faith, isn't it? Now, if you had a neighbor come to you and say, "Uh, hey, I'd like to plant a garden. And what can you tell me? Uh, Whether you're a good gardener or not, there's a few basic things you might tell them. Uh, You might say, first of all, I hope you understand, this is going to take bona fide work. Uh, This is going to take the sweat of the brow. There's fallow ground to be broken up. You don't just throw seeds out there. You're going to have to remove rocks. You're going to have to get hot and sweaty. Splinters in your hands building boxes maybe. It's going to take work. The other thing you need to understand, you would tell them, you can expect opposition. How many of you have your weeds trained to where they don't grow? I don't. You pull them up, what happens? More are coming. You pull those up, what happens? More are coming. Right? You can expect difficulty trying to do a good work to get the fruit out of the ground in a sin-cursed world, can't you? The third, you would tell them, oh, you've got to understand the time element. You see, you're not going to plant a seed and then pick a crop the next day. It's going to take time to grow. Why is it, though, we forget those three things when it comes to serving the Lord sometimes? So the weeds keep growing. What did you expect? The people don't necessarily love to hear the word of God. What did you expect? Oh, I don't. I don't see the fruit right away. What did you expect? I'm guilty too sometimes. I'm not just pointing a finger. I have to remind myself of this. We remember them in the gardening realm, but Not necessarily. Outside of that, I think sometimes the tendency, it's human nature. When the long seasons of winter in the spiritual life come, the tendency is to back away, isn't it? And our thinking sometimes is, I'm going to go a little bit into my shell until this blows over, but what happens? That very decision puts us further in the shell, doesn't it? We talked last time about the wood, hay, and stubble. What does all that have in common? It's easy to gather, and it burns well. But the other category, the gold, silver, precious stones, what does that have in common? A lot of times it's embedded in solid rock. And I tell you truly, I believe with all my soul the greatest treasures that we'll lay upon that altar for the Lord's sake are going to be when we keep walking with Him in the dead of winter, spiritually speaking. You can't see beyond the blizzard. Trials keep coming. You don't see the fruit. You don't know what God's doing. You see, that's where Paul and Silas were. You think they left those beatings and the imprisonment there at Philippi and said, say, I bet we'll go to Thessalonica and God's going to plant a solid church in less than a month. But he did. Characteristic number two, we find in verse number four, they labored for God's approval alone. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the Gospel, even so we speak. So, they'd cultivated this constant realization of the weight of the stewardship that had been entrusted to them and they refused to be pulled aside by lesser motivations. Ask yourself this question honestly. Don't answer out loud. How many days in the last month have you gone through the majority of a day cognizant of the fact that you were laboring that day for God's approval Alone. You see, if we don't have that one straight, all the lesser things have the tendency to rattle us to pieces. Don't they? I mean, are we so moved by the opinions of fellow creatures of the dust that we're going to change the tenor of our life, or we're going to panic, or we're going to walk around in some sort of paranoia, or we're going to run away from God. That could be changing a message to uh, suit the ungodly culture around us. I mean, that could be trying to pacify the shallow religious experience that's around on every hand, just kind of getting uh, cow-toed into silence. It could mean not stepping forward and serving the Lord because you're so worried about what somebody else thinks. Don't get me wrong. It's not that others' opinions don't matter. But they shine light on the one opinion that does matter. Otherwise, let me tell you something. They don't matter. You mark it well, you step out, you're going to walk with God, opposition is going to arise, critics are going to arise, people aren't going to like what you do, that's a given. That's why it's so important to begin the day with, Lord, I'm laying myself down a living sacrifice, I want your approval, I want your smile, I want your fellowship, and I'm going to run everything else through that filter. Everything. Everything. Friends, some of you know people's opinions will kill you if you let them, won't they? If I stand up here inordinately worried about men's opinions, I won't last very long. I can't. I can't. News flash from behind the pulpit. I have people upset with me a lot. I don't saying in here people are throwing rocks. I don't mean that. But I'm saying as a pastor, the people know in the community, opposition comes. I can either tuck tail and run, or I can say, you know what? I'm planting a garden for God, and opposition's going to come. What oh, would cultivate a mentality that we're going to outlast the opposition? We should. Notice how these men did not preach. This is some of the wood, hay, and stubble. Now we'll take some of the negatives. We find those in verses 3 and 5. And uh, these are very much related to uh, one another. Now let me just ask this question, though. Why is Paul mentioning these things? This isn't a preacher's conference. I don't think he was insinuating that this church was guilty of these things. I think what he was saying and assuming is that there's a sad human tendency to stray in these directions if we're not careful, if we don't call them what they are. How many of you have found out? Not just if you're going to name the name of Christ. The name of Jesus can be very popular in apostate America. But when you walk with the real Jesus, when you determine you're going to obey the Word of God, you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus. How many of you found the current is against you? And if there's not a deliberate holding on to biblical principle, you will be shoved downstream. I think that's what he was telling them. There are many, sadly, who have made most of their religious career built upon the things we're going to talk about. Let's define them quickly. He says, uh, first of all, our ministry, are entering into in, you, verse 3, was not of deceit. Now, deceit is not there. It's not the normal word for lying. In fact, that word's translated many times in the New Testament as error. It's a, it's a straying away from orthodoxy. In fact, Jude, in verse 11 of his short epistle, mentions the false teachers who ran after the error of Balaam. Same word. Second Thessalonians 2, speaking of those who reject the Gospel in this current age, if they enter the tribulation period, it says God shall send them strong delusion. Same word. If they wanted a lie, they can have it. So it speaks of this deception, often deliberately in the spiritual realm. One of the ways that can be done is changing the message to make it more palatable to human wisdom and nature, or to pacify a certain crowd or intentionally deceive for uh, some other reason. Uh, One of the most glaring ways this is done in modern times, I might add, is this cross-less gospel that's peddled as a faith of the apostles. That's so unbelievably positive that it never fails to lay out to mankind his real state before a holy God. You ever think about what's the real force driving the so-called church growth movement? I'll tell you what it is. There's been a fundamental change in philosophy that we're going to gauge truth based on man's opinion to it rather than gauging truth based on what God said. And the minute you go this way, the Pandora's box is open. Oh, I'd love to expound on that, but I don't have time at the moment. I trust you understand what I'm talking about. He says it wasn't of deceit. It wasn't letting air fly to make people happy. He says it wasn't of uncleanness. That speaks of moral uh, filthiness and purity. In other words, he didn't teach the grace of God in such a way as to encourage loose living and gratification of the flesh. He didn't uh, treat sin lightly, but he reproved it for what it was, rebellion against the high king of heaven. He said it wasn't in guile. Guile speaks of bait, a snare. It's also translated subtlety, like the Jewish leaders taking Jesus by a subtlety. Sneakiness, having an ulterior motive, declaring one purpose and and living another behind the mask. Jesus said when He saw Nathanael, maybe you remember the words, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. That's quite a play on words, by the way. Remember, Israel was Jacob before his name changed in the hip incident, but the name Jacob means deceiver. And he's saying, look, a descendant of Israel indeed, what I intended, one with no subtlety, no guile. That was quite a compliment coming from Christ himself. Quite a statement. He's saying that uh, they had no hidden agenda in their preaching. They weren't trying merely to build a following after their own name or line their own pocketbooks. They were exactly what they seemed to be. You notice, though, pure motivations give birth to real boldness. There's something about impurity in the heart that makes men want to slink into a corner and hide like a cockroach. He says it wasn't with flattering words. Verse 5 There are different kinds of flattery, isn't there? I mean, one is essentially gratifying a person's self-love, confirming their own good opinion of themselves, this excessive, unwarranted praise of a person, uh, usually in order to get something from them. If you've read something by Norman Vincent Peale, uh, you've probably run across this type of nonsense, who, by the way, heavily influenced Robert Shuler with his false gospel of self-esteem. Someone has rightly said Paul was appealing and Peel was appalling. Boy, are they right on that one. Why are we warned against flattery? Because we love to hear good things about ourselves and we are proud fallen creatures. You know another kind of flattery? Giving people high hopes that are not well-founded in truth making promises that I do not have the authority to make. Imagine a new doctor comes to Helena. He's from a new type of medical school. he believes bad news is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So he's going to open the good news medical clinic. And his philosophy is this if somebody comes in with something like a stage four cancer why well, I'm gonna tell them all as well It don't want to hurt their self-esteem I certainly don't want to outline the gravity of the situation because that might uh, cause some kind of you know complex in their head so I'm going to just speak blessing on them how long would that clinic last sadly it might last a while you know why Because all the people that died were deceived would go out the back door and a whole new generation of people that only wanted good news would keep coming in the front. Can I tell you something? Those churches are all over this country. They're everywhere. Positive only. Positive only. I'm all for good news. But friends, listen, the good news means nothing to you until you know the bad news. You don't appreciate the love and mercy of a holy God who condescends to save you for no merit of your own until you know what a rogue and a rebel and a monstrosity in His universe you are. And I tell you truly, if you're sitting here today and you've never come to the spot where you acknowledge I have sinned against the God of heaven, I deserve His condemnation, there's no excuse for my behavior, there's no there's no diminishment of the justice I deserve, I'm a hell-born, hell-doomed rebel if you've never come there. You need to question if you know Christ. Jesus doesn't save pretty good people. He came to save sinners. The word sinner is not a badge of honor, it's a badge of shame. Have you ever been a sinner in your own sight? Then you can't be a saint. What is it that keeps people in false religion? There's lots of things. Oftentimes it's twin lies. You're a fairly good person. It will go well with you in eternity because essentially you deserve it. Both of those are satanic. You don't deserve anything good in eternity, neither do I. And you are not a good person by the divine standard. All of us are justly condemned. But do you realize the same God that tells you that, the same God who created hell, came to die for your sins? Don't charge Him with being unloving. No, He's a God of truth. And listen, He loves your soul too much to water things down. I don't know how many times I remember this particularly in the prison ministry. The guys were going through some great battle in their life. And I wanted so badly to give them some comfort. But oh, I was keenly aware at those times there was a line drawn where I couldn't go past in the comfort I gave. You see, I can't give comfort God doesn't authorize me to give. I can't stand by the bed of a cancer patient and say, be warmed and filled, brother. God's going to raise you up. I know it. I don't have that authority. And I won't do that. I have the authority to comfort according to the Scriptures. It's so common for men to treat God, especially today, like a generous, wealthy merchantman at the bargaining table, rather than the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. We have to confine our comforts to truth and go no further. That also applies to somebody struggling. Am I really saved? If you're going to handle that biblically... There's no 20-second answer that's going to make all the struggle go away. You're going to help them work through this? Books like the Epistle of 1 John, for instance? God's willing to give assurance, but listen, God has to be the one that gives the assurance. Don't come to me and say, I need dogmatic proof. I want you to tell me whether or not I'm saved. I won't do that. I'll point you to the cross. I'll give you passages to study. But that's between you and God. I'll help where I can, but I'm not that judge. Neither is anybody else. So uh, Paul refused to appeal to men's own ego and self-interest, even for a so-called good cause. Does it help somebody to have false comfort? Really? Might for a while. But payday's still coming sometimes. He says it wasn't with a cloak of covetousness. Now, the Greek word translated cloak is also translated a pretense. The Lord talked about those that for a pretense made long prayers, or they have no cloak, no covering for their sin. So when He talks about this this cloak of covetousness, He's not saying pretending to be covetous, but He's saying basically using the ministry, using religious reasoning to try... To get something out of somebody. Putting on the mask of caring for people, caring for their soul, going after them, teaching them, doing whatever with some kind of motive of getting something in return. What kind of things do people covet? Well, money certainly could be one. How about esteem? Praise of men. Can I say something very unflattering about the Fundamental Baptist Movement for a minute? If you're familiar with the history of fundamentalism, largely, it's a good history. Uh, fundamentalism, if you don't know what the term means, it's just believing the fundamentals of the Word of God. Believing the basics. Uh, whatever people have done with that term is, is another matter, but the word itself isn't a bad word. But Early in the 1900s, the, the, the battle with modernism was really exploding, and there was a need for men to come together and say, look, We're opposed to this modernistic direction. That I mean, guys that are denying the miracles of the Bible, denying the resurrection of Christ, denying the inspiration of Scripture. And so they came together and said, these are the fundamentals. These are the things you must believe to fellowship with us. And men like R.A. Torrey penned a book called The Fundamentals, which is still in print. You can still find that. Okay, that's where it started. But you fast-forward... Uh, to the 1970s and the 1980s particularly. Now, we can't broad brush every church in that era. I know that. There's always been men that have opposed the things I'm saying. But what was happening in the fundamental Baptist movement at large, most had swallowed into this idea that big equaled faithful. And so there's this huge push. That's where the term or the statement, if you've heard it, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And of course, what they mean by that is evangelism. Now, evangelism is important. Don't get me wrong. But the main thing is the glory of God and subjection to His Word. And out of that comes everything else. When you crown evangelism as king, what happens? Now all of a sudden you have this push on who has the biggest church? Who has the biggest Sunday school? And uh, in fact, I I could pull up the flyer and show it to you. They uh, had Jack Hiles and his son Dave Hiles and their bus captain on there. And churches, fundamentalist churches, were actually passing these out. And here's what it said. Come hear the world's three greatest men. Jack Hiles, pastor of the world's largest Sunday school. Dave Hiles, leader of the world's largest youth group, the youth group, and whatever the other guy's name was, the world's largest bus ministry. I don't know what was more disgusting that they allowed that to be printed or professing Bible-believing churches actually let that come into the door. By the way, two of those men that I just named, total charlatans, proved later on. Is it any surprise? Out of that quest for bigness, guess what came? That's where shallow evangelism showed up. That's where carefulness and taking time to deal with the souls of men was sacrificed on the altar of pragmatism. That's where evangelism went from laying foundations, waiting for God to work the miracle of conviction, telling people to believe in Christ, and then it came down to five verses, repeat this prayer, brother, all is well for you heading into eternity. Do you know why? Because now I can write down the statistic and email back to some place in Murfreesboro, Tennessee and tell them how many people I had saved this month. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm telling you how this happens. And so, carefulness with the souls of men has been sacrificed under a cloak of covetousness. Can you imagine a preacher showing up with a banner in front of him saying, world's greatest man? Unbelievable. Let's say you're a lost person, and down the street here, you got a neighbor. He's religious, you say, and, and, uh, and he's inviting you to this conference coming up. He's sincere. So you come, and there you are sitting there with a couple thousand other people. Then all of a sudden, the guy that invited you, he's called up front on the platform. They say, hey, we just want to recognize brother so-and-so in our contest to see who could have the most visitors He won. He had 57 visitors. And the whole place erupts into applause. Your neighbor takes his trophy. He comes and sits down next to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were that neighbor sitting next to him, I wouldn't listen to a word the preacher said after that. Because you know what that just told me? I am a byproduct to get something for him. That still happens every year. It's the same kind of thing. It's covering up this ulterior motive to get recognition from the good old boys' network. Can I tell you something? That's disgusting. And God hates it. I don't care if it's under the name Fundamental Baptist or not. It's wrong. It happens with money, doesn't it? Some of you have seen, you want to gather all the buzzards in an extended family together, just see who... Flies in from out of town when a rich relative is about to die. It happens. You know, it's kind of like this. Picture a guy going to his coat closet, and uh, you know, you're going to go pick out a coat for the morning. There's a few considerations you're going to think about. Let's see, what weather am I going to face? You know, does it go with the motif? You know, what I'm? Does it match what I'm wearing? What season is it outside? Right? Picture a guy going to his closet. Let's see. What do I need to get today? What's it? Do I want to put on the coat of anger and th- no, 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 I don't want to wear that one. Uh, the coat of success. No, 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 no. Ah, here it is. The code of religion. Why that suits my purposes best. I'll put that one on today. Paul says, we did not do that. To use anything in such a pretentious way is despicable, but to use the supposed truth of God in that manner is a total abomination. What was Balaam's sin, really? Balaam's an interesting character that sort of appears in the Old Testament. Balaam's sin was this. He was a prophet for profit. He was going to use religion to gain something, to gain riches. And uh, Peter warns about, through covetousness shall they, speaking of false teachers, uh, make merchandise of you. That's one major characteristic of the false teachers today. The great shepherd gave his life for the sheep, and these people fleeced the sheep to pad their own life and build their own little empire. It's just like the Lord said, they have their reward. But it's going to burn. Paul says their ministry wasn't of deceit. It wasn't of uncleanness or guile or flattering words or a cloak of covetousness. I'm going to read you something. This is from, actually, Jim Elliott's journal. He wrote on this particular passage, but listen to what he said. He said, In spiritual work, if nowhere else, the character of the worker decides the quality of the work. Shelley and Byron may be moral freelancers and still write good poetry. Wagner may be lecherous and still produce fine music, but it cannot be so in any work for God. Paul could refer to his own character and manner of living for proof of what he was saying to the Thessalonians. Nine times in this first epistle he says, you know, referring to the Thessalonians' first-hand observation of Paul's private as well as public life. Paul went to Thessalonica and lived a life that more than illustrated what he preached. It went beyond illustration to convincing proof. No wonder so much work in the kingdom is shoddy. Look at the moral character of the worker. how but he's right he's right you know none of us will ever go beyond our own real character in eternity's records when all things are revealed I had a coach in school that used to say, character is who you are in the dark. Never forgot that statement. He wasn't applying it so much on a spiritual Christian level. But he was right. So how do they avoid these pitfalls? Verse 4, As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. They have this continual realization that upon this great stage called human life, there's really one in the audience that matters. I don't remember if I've asked this question before, but I'll ask it again if I have. Have you ever sat and been doing something and it it suddenly came to your mind that there's angels innumerable and that there's probably several in the room watching what you're doing? Angels that you are going to see face to face someday. And maybe that realization causes you a bit of embarrassment. Until you stop and think, now wait a minute. The one that made the angels out of nothing. He's here too. Suddenly the angels aren't so important, are they? The same holds true for us. The greater of a realization that we have of who God is and His continual burning presence, the less we will allow ourselves to be swayed by lesser motivations. And uh, he says this word, he says, as we were allowed. And that's not merely a divine permission or a one-time thing. God says, all right, you have permission, now go. The idea of that statement is approved of God. It means uh, divine approval after divine testing. So, this stewardship apparently is not something that all Christians have to the same degree. You think about it this way. When you faithfully carry out through thick and thin the ministry capacities God's entrusted to you, more doors are going to open. But the opposite is also true. As see, Paul was saying more doors open to us because we walked through that one. We walked through that one. We walk through that one. He says, As we were allowed, as we were uh, approved of God, even so we speak. How's that? Not as pleasing men, but God, which tryeth the hearts. Now, in what way does God try the hearts? We might automatically look forward to the judgment seat of Christ when all works are manifest. That's part of it. But notice the tense there. The end of verse 4. It doesn't say God which will try the hearts. It says God which trieth right now the hearts. The judgment seat of Christ is not Jesus putting on a new hat. The judgment seat of Christ is not Jesus really deciding anything. The judgment seat of Christ is Him revealing to you and I what He has been seeing this whole time, including today. You know, right now, this very second God is searching hearts in here, Right this second. You see, if we only think of God trying the hearts as a future event, we miss out. The more you realize God trying the hearts as a present tense attribute of God, the more it begins to affect everyday conduct. You see, it's not something God turns off and on like a light switch. It is His nature. To be anywhere near such holiness and purity and righteousness, that's going to produce hard examination. And haven't you found there's no strength to earnestly pray when we're in willful disobedience? How many of you have found by experience your most heart-searching and fruitful times of prayer with God begin with, O oh God, search my heart and reveal to me what is in the way. so necessary. What was going on when Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead? God was trying the hearts. You know, it's interesting what He says in Revelation 2. I think it's verse 23 when He's talking to the church of Thyatira. He's talking about a judgment that's about to fall. And here's what He says. He says, And all the churches shall know that I am He who which searcheth the reins and hearts. Not will search. Searcheth. Now friends, by the way, that's why if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, I'm not talking about the way we can push people away with our attitude. That's possible. But if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, even with the proper spirit, some people are not going to be comfortable around you. Are you willing to accept that? Or are those opinions so valuable that you'll turn your back on parts of the Word of God? You see, we have a choice to make, don't we? An ongoing one, and the current is very strong the other way. These men learn to live in the ongoing light of God's heart-searching presence they adjusted their lives accordingly. Think about your stewardships again, your ministries. as husband, as wife, as parent, as neighbor, as coworker, as piano player or Sunday school teacher, or anything else? Is it God's approval you want more than anything? It ought to be. Is it His approval you seek? There are some hymns that are harder to sing than others. One of my favorites, though, I'll admit, sometimes the very words are so convicting I have a hard time saying it out loud. The song, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. If you've not read that in a while, I recommend you do. But one of the verses says this, let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like man, untrue. And while thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends may shun me. Show thy face and all is bright. We ought to be teachable. We ought to care about our brethren, loving them, hearing them. But if those ever overshadow the one central opinion that matters, we're making an idol out of that person. Do you know Christ this morning? Most of you have discussed this topic fairly at length. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. I'd love all of you to see you live a good long time so long as the world continues. But you and I know full well your life may end today. And you see, being right with God isn't so much of answering the question, do I want to go to heaven? That, by the way, is an offshoot of the shallow evangelism that's taken over. That misses the central point. So the question I'm asking you this morning isn't do you want to go to heaven? Everybody does. The question is, are you sufficiently convinced that you're dead in sins that you would say, I want life? I want to flee from the wrath to come. I don't want to go on into eternity with the load of my sins on my back. I don't want to sink under the eternal weight of the judgment and the justice and the wrath of the Almighty God. I don't want to go to eternity and remembering day after day after day through conscious suffering that I had chances to be saved and people loved my soul enough to warn me about the wrath to come and to plead with me to come to Christ and I wouldn't. Multitudes are there right now. But you see, no one here can believe for you. No church leader can change the state of your eternity. You have to deal personally with the real God of this book. Now, I can help you to know who He is, but I can't save you and neither can this church. Neither can any church. The message to you is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved even today. Let's pray. Father, You know how prone we are to get so rattled by the opinions of mortals who live 90 years at best. Father, help us to have a rightful esteem for the opinions of brothers and sisters. But Lord, let those be kept in check. by such a great desire to please You that will not be deterred from doing so no matter if all the world stands against us. Father, pray You'd help us as an assembly to stand firmly against the tide. Lord, the current is picking up. Things are going downstream very quickly. But Lord, Thy Word, Thy character is an immovable rock in the midst of that river. No matter how hard the river goes downstream, we don't have to go with it. I pray You'd protect us. I pray You'd open our eyes in areas where we're blind. There must be some. We are far from perfect and far from arrived. And I pray You'd help us to grow as individual Christians. And out of that, to grow as a manifestation of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we read about Paul saying how those people knew his testimony and we want to cringe because we see our faults and failures. Yet, thank You for the growth that's there. And help us, Lord, in increasing measure to be aware how important that is to live out Christianity. I want Him to know grace has been given to do so. We're not left to our own resources. Fathers, you're searching hearts this morning. You know there's some here that are Outside of salvation. Father, I pray you make it manifest to them the tremendous danger they're in and how much they deserve it. But Lord, also that you're a God ready to forgive, quick to pardon. The God who came down to shed your blood, them. In Jesus' name, amen.